0: of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. You have your Bibles, and I pray that you do have your Bibles. Uh, turn to John chapter 20. If you don't have a Bible this morning and you'd like to follow along with us, there should be some pew Bibles somewhere maybe in front of you in one of the pews, underneath one of the chairs. We invite you to take that. If you don't have a... Um, uh, Bible at home that, uh, that you're able to read, take that home with you. We'd love for you to just keep that and uh, to be able to read the Word of God this week, John chapter 20. And if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, we've been looking through those seven last sayings of Christ. And we've, the last couple of weeks we've been in John 19 and looking at those words of Christ. And now we go to John chapter 20 and we see the week after Easter. Week after Easter can dramatically change in some ways. The finished work of Christ is finished now. It's been complete. The tomb is empty, and Christ has risen from the dead. And so you have this great celebratory moment, and yet we see that still the disciples, these people that really love Jesus, they really do love Jesus, they truly want to follow Jesus, and yet we see that they have kind of minds and hearts much like ours, that sometimes doubt and fear can come and creep in, sometimes even take over. If you have your Bible this morning, I want you to do this. We've done this several times before, and I want you to do this this morning as we go back into God's Word. Can we go ahead and show that first slide? Guys, if there's one thing I, I want you to really kind of capture, is that this is one story, okay? It's not just Old Testament, New Testament. There is an Old Testament. There's a New Testament. Yes, there's different books in the Bible. They have different themes like poetry, and they have the Gospels, and they have we have different historical books. We have... Uh, kind of Levitical books and books about the law. We have all kinds of different things, but it is one book telling one story. And yet this one story can really easily be broken down to four major sections. So I want you to do this. We've done it before, but I want this visual in your mind, in your heart. Go to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, wherever that is in your Bible. Okay? Okay. And for most of you, it's going to be one page, okay? It's just going to be one page. Chapter 1 and 2 is right there, okay? That is God creating this world, okay? So that whole first thing is probably just in that one page that you're holding. Probably it's on front and back, so you're probably just holding one page, and that's creation. God is creating the heavens and the earth and everything that we see, okay? The second thing is the fall. Go to Genesis chapter 3. Maybe on the same page, it may be just like one page over, Genesis chapter 3. That's the fall. That's where Adam and Eve, God's creation, he created them perfect, but they were, get this, fallibly perfect. It means they could make mistakes. They could sin. God is infallible. He cannot sin. Okay, we're fallible. And so Adam and Eve, they made a choice. They followed their own hearts instead of the heart of God. They rebelled against God. We call that sin. And they fell from that position of oneness with God as as far as just having this ultimate communion with God. And now they're separated from God because He's holy God. Okay? You should have just one page there. So you had one page before, one page there. Now go all the way back to Revelation, to the very last chapters of Revelation. Revelation 21, right there. Go all the way in the back of your Bible and kind of find that. If you have a study Bible... It's a little bit harder because there's probably a lot of notes or different things like that. So, Drew, do you have that Revelation? Go to 21. Okay, that's probably on one or two pages, okay? Now, ultimately, that's this last part, restoration. This is at the end times when all that has been completed that God has done, and we go to heaven. Now, again, if we die before then, our our spirits go to heaven. But the ultimate culmination of all this story that God is telling us is found on these last kind of pages. So you just have like one or two pages there. Okay, so so far you had one page, one page. You have one or two pages there at the end. All this middle section there is the part that we call redemption. This whole middle section is this part of God sending a Savior redeeming us as lost people to him, a holy God. The whole rest of the Bible is that. So you have a page, a page. You have a page at the end. The whole rest of the Bible is about the story of restoration. Now get this. Easter represents the culmination of all those middle pages. He sends the Savior. The Savior comes, takes on flesh. Jesus clothes himself in human flesh. He takes on this flesh. He's willing to live for us, and then he's willing to die for us. And then we see on Easter, what we call Easter Sunday morning, that he rises from the dead. All of this is the culmination right there in what we call the Easter story. This whole Bible is mostly filled with the story of redemption. There's the high point. It's kind of like how many of you, I, I know we are planning a wedding back there. Okay, and so months are going into it. How many of you planned a wedding for more than 12 months? That when you decided, I know I Okay, did you have the husband at that time? I mean, it was one of those, you know, because I know some girls, you know, I've been planning it since I was like six years old. No, but okay. But did you, you know, you go and you, for 12 months, I know when, with both of our girls, what would you say, Carly? At least a year, wasn't it? Of just, you know, all the details, the flowers, the cake, the this, the venue, all the different things you're putting into it. And then it culminates on that wedding day. I mean, that's a lot of work, a lot of effort, a lot of synapses that have happened and then they all kind of culminate well that's Easter guys all this planning and all this restoration that God is redeeming us back to himself through the finished work of Christ it all culminates on Easter so you would think that this would be pinnacle I don't know how many couples I'm sure that there's probably some that exist that you begin to have fear and doubt that very first week of marriage if you did don't raise your hand right now okay Unless you and your spouse have had a long discussion on that, please don't. Please don't start that discussion right this moment, okay? But you know, at least in the moment, you would think, okay, here's the pinnacle 12 months of preparation. You get married. You know, all of a sudden, you go on the honeymoon, maybe to some really nice place. You're thinking, okay, you're still riding this whole wedding thing and this whole marriage thing pretty high. It's only after what's never happened to me. I've never doubted our marriage would. It's only after months and years that all of a sudden you're going, you know, man, what was I thinking or something like that? Maybe a momentary thought comes. It's not that all of a sudden you want out of the marriage, but all of a sudden, you know, some of the weight of this responsibility, some of the weight of this relationship comes, and there's that momentary wandering thought. <sighs> well, that's the reality, but I doubt it really happens during the funny I doubt it really happens initially. I doubt after one week they're going, you know, we don't know. Pastor, we, we want some more counseling because we're ready to call it quits. Well, that's kind of how we find the disciples. This pinnacle. Okay, we just saw that the entirety of the Bible for the most part, except for two or three pages, is all about this story of redemption. And yet it all comes to this pinnacle that Christ has risen from the dead. They go, there's this empty grave. Everything that is promised has happened. And yet we find that they're really kind of struggling. I don't know how many NFL draft people we have here. If you watched a little bit of that. Did you see the other night? I know some of the Clemson fans did. um, That all of a sudden we see uh, Christian Wilkin, right? Okay. Can we show that picture? I know you're going to have to come back to that in just a second. Did y'all see that? He gets drafted. Was he number 14? Was it the 14th? Okay, I figured you would have that engraved somewhere on a pillow, Julie. Um, But he comes out there, and as he's walking to the stage, he does give the NFL commissioner, you know, this sign right here means, okay, we're going to do the chest bump. Well, somehow, the NFL commissioner went right over his head. And so this 315-pound, 6-foot whatever guy comes and starts this chest bump and kind of comes right into him. Well, afterwards, you know, after they made sure that all the pieces were still connected, they uh, he, they grabbed him, and this guy picks him up, and he's so excited. Why? Because ever since probably Sandlot ball, somebody said, you know, you, man, you're good enough. You may play in the NFL one time. All through high school, and they said, me, you may play some college ball. All through Clemson and those championship year and different things like that. Man, you may be drafted it all kind of culminates and he gets drafted. The guy's beyond excited. And wouldn't you think that that's really kind of how the disciples... I mean, I don't know that they're out there chest bumping one another, but don't you think that that's kind of where the disciples should be after this culmination of all that has been expected, all that has been promised, all the prophecies have come true, and now Christ is risen from the dead. The Apostle Paul says that it's the pinnacle point of the whole Bible. Let's go back to that 1 Corinthians passage. He said, For I deliver to you of first importance. That's word, uh, in the word protos in the Greek. It means the foremost. This is the high pinnacle. This is the most important part. He said, I deliver to you of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, then he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Paul says, out of all the Bible, he said, it's all important, it's all God's Word, but he said, this is the pinnacle. It's the utmost importance. Another way that Paul probably would say, everything that Christ promised, everything that God does, kind of hinges on this. That Christ really did come, that he lived a perfect life, that he was willing to die as a Savior for those that would trust him, and that he rose again. Because Paul does go on and say, man, it... it, it, in 1 Corinthians fifteen fourteen, a couple of verses later, he said, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And what? What's the last part of that? Not only am I kind of have nothing to preach if Christ is not risen from the dead, but what about your faith? Your faith is in vain. You see, you can have all the faith, you can have all the emotions, you can have all this, but it's in vain if Christ really hasn't risen from the dead. All to say, guys, I hope that so far what we're doing is, is saying the pinnacle of all Christianity, of God's story, is all in this empty tomb. And yet, where do we find the disciples? John chapter 20, yeah. John chapter 20, verse 19. Look what it says. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, The doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Okay, the pinnacle. We don't see this chest bumping going on. What we see is locked doors and kind of hovering in the darkness and in the shadows. Now, we can understand that. If they've come and they've arrested Jesus... And they took him and hung him on the cross. You can get the human dilemma there, guys. Okay, are we next? Are they going to get all the followers of Christ now? And since we were the disciples, we were part of that that circle of people that traveled with him these three years. These guys are thinking, okay, are are we next? And yet there's something that's kind of contradictory there in that they have seen an empty tomb. Mary has already come back from the tomb and said, Look, he is risen. I have actually talked to Jesus, and he is alive. And whether they are just not comprehending what, Jesus, uh, what Mary says, whether they don't put two and two together with this empty tomb, they're kind of in conflict and they're reacting in a very normal way when you're kind of under stress. They close the doors, they get into the darkness, and they lock the door for fear of their own life. Fear, worry, doubt comes into their lives. Let's read the rest of verse 19. On that evening of the day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and he said to them, Peace be with you. If you've ever been to Israel, shalom. And he says, shalom. But he doesn't just say that like, you know, hi. He truly is is kind of, it's almost a command to them. Peace be with you. I, I come to bring you peace. Jesus doesn't lecture them. He doesn't say why was the door locked. In fact, that he gets into the room is really miraculous because he does have a physical body. Okay, this is the part that's kind of it takes faith, but he has a physical body. It's not just a ghostly; he's not Casper the ghost, kind of just floating around. He has a physical body. We're going to see that later because he eats, and and, and they're going to be able to touch his body, and yet he doesn't unlock the door. He comes comes through the wall through the door. So, so it's a miraculous thing that he's in the midst of them. But as he's in the midst of them, he does say, peace be with you. And he doesn't lecture them. He does not condemn them. What he does is, okay, I've brought some medicine for your sickness. Preached a, a sermon in, in the prison system a long time ago. Probably one of my favorite sermons. I won't give you all the details because it was kind of an edgy sermon. But basically I was telling, you know, ask, asking the guys, you know, uh, there are several kinds of people in in life. One type of person is, you know that will go ahead and tell you that you stepped in something and you stink. Now remember, I'm preaching this in prison, okay? Yeah. To, to the guys that are in jail. They totally relate, relate and said, when I asked, have you ever stepped in something? I've stepped in it, Pastor. I, I mean, I love preaching there because they were... They, and, and so... You know, I said there's the people that will tell you that you've stepped in something. You stink. There will be other people that will look back and said, you know, he's about to step in something, and he's going to stink if he does and doesn't do anything warning. Then there's other people that said, you know, you stepped in something. Can I help you get that off? This is my Jesus. Jesus doesn't sit there and say, you know, you stepped in something and you're offensive to me and you smell. Can you stay over there? He doesn't see me about to step in something and and go and say, okay, I'm just saying a white man, it's really going to be bad when he does this. I have a God who clothed himself in flesh and in the midst of my sin comes and says, hey man, you're in trouble here. You're in sickness here and I'm bringing medicine for your sickness. This is our Christ. And this is what we see here, guys. He doesn't want church. He doesn't condemn, even though he easily could have. He could have said, where is your faith? Did you not listen to anything? Three years of teaching. Did you not comprehend anything? I told you I was going to go to the grave. I told you on the third day that that I would rise again. What part of that did you not get? And yet we don't see a finger pointing. We don't see a condemnation. What we see is, it's a greeting, and a little bit later we're going to see an invitation. This is our Christ. See, this Easter thing is real. It's a real big deal, guys. And even though this big deal happens, we still find the vulnerability of our own humanity and our fears and our doubts. And we see the disciples that did love Jesus. I believe that they loved Jesus so this shows us that we can love Jesus and still have doubt and fear in our lives. We just don't want doubt and fear to start to take over our lives. We don't want to be ruled by that. And that's why Jesus comes and he begins to offer medicine for this sickness. See, there's going to be times in our lives that we will doubt God's promises. There's going to be times that we doubt his goodness. There's going to be times that we doubt his love. Have you had to, ever had to, to suffer like through a, a physical sickness before? And you've had to do that long term. There's times you're going, okay, God, I keep on praying for healing. I keep on praying that you'll take this away. I keep on praying that somehow you're going to fix this and it hasn't been fixed yet, God. And so sometimes doubt can begin to enter our mind. Sometimes it's in our mind. It's a logistical thing. Maybe we're very linear people and God is not a linear God. And so God makes this promise that something's going to happen. Maybe it's when we're going through relationship problems and, and God is promise to care for our soul, and yet maybe we're going through a divorce or maybe going through some other family matter that is breaking our heart. And we cry out to God just as David did. God, where are you? Will you ever hear me again? That was one of David's prayers. One of his cries out to God, even though he knew that the sin in his own heart had created some of that distance. Folks, that's, that's where we can be this morning. And, and so the truth is, faith, and doubt we're going to battle with until God calls us home. And that doesn't mean that it has to be an everyday battle and doesn't certainly doesn't mean that, that we're, a doubt and, and fear are going to have victory over us. doesn't mean that we have to surrender to them. But to think that you're going to go through this life and then there's not going to be days, even though you love Jesus and you know about the resurrection and you got all your facts down that somehow you're not going to battle with those things that go off in the mind and the heart that cause doubt and sometimes a lack of faith. That's what's happening here with these guys. We find out that there's ten disciples that are there as we read on. Judas is already gone. He's hung himself. But there's one other that's not there, and his name is Thomas. And, and you probably know him as What? Doubting Thomas You know You doubt one time And you get this name For the rest of your life I mean it's, it's, Do you know that Even in the dictionary They have Doubting Thomas They really do They kind of tell the story it's Kind of an amazing thing And yet Thomas really is A guy Up to this point If we look at The scriptures earlier There's only a few mentions Of him specifically But there's one time That they know They're going to go into town They know that The people are kind of Riling up against them And he goes Let's go and die I mean, this guy is not a regular doubt. This is not kind of a, just a wimpy kind of guy that's always, oh, what if this happens? No. He's away from the other ten when Jesus appears this one time. But as we read on the story, look what happens. Verse 24 and 25. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord but he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. He seems pretty sure about that. He didn't just say, this would really help me. He said, no, unless I do these things, I will never believe. Now, you have to understand by this point that Christ has revealed himself to the other ten disciples. I don't know if they came up And Jesus said, hey, go ahead and and touch that. I don't know if they said, put your hand to my side. I don't know. But they've seen the risen body of Christ. So they have visual and probably experiential evidence in their mind that has got them to this place of belief. And they come back. Thomas is now with them. Again, we don't know where he was. But he's now with them. So there's 11 disciples. They're in this room. And they tell him, this is what we saw. It's a week later. This is what we saw. We saw Jesus, and he was risen. Just like he said, he's risen. He's got a body, and he was there with us, and they go on and on, and yet Thomas comes and he says, you know, unless I I touch the hand, unless I touch the side, I, I won't believe. In one way, he's not really demanding any more than what they already had evidence to. He says, I just want to know for myself. I think we give Thomas a really, really hard time here. He's like, come on, Thomas. You know, take the word for it. But how many times in your own walk with Christ has somebody given you wise counsel and yet doubt, worry, and fear kind of came in? And you're going, but if I really did that, this could be the result. I don't think Thomas is a bad Christian. I think he's a human Christian. I don't think he's a bad believer. I just think he's a very human believer. Because I think given the circumstances, any one of us, that it could really say in there, now Bobby, now Cliff, now Vicky, and it could have any one of our names in there that there would be this point of going, I really want to see this for myself. Not that I don't trust you guys, but I really want to see what you saw. Verse 26. Eight days later, the disciples were inside again. And Thomas was with them. And although though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Shalom. So he extends this again. Now, do you find anything strange about this verse? The doors were locked. Now, for these great people, you know, the, the ten disciples that saw Jesus a week before gave now testimony to Thomas, going, Okay, you really should believe take our word for it, and yet they're still behind locked doors. They're still struggling, guys. They may be able to say, Thomas, you just need to believe like us. And If I was Thomas, I'm just probably critical enough where I could say, oh, so is that why you locked the door? I mean, there's plenty of data here for us to say, okay, maybe you're moving in the right direction, disciples, ten disciples, but you're not there yet. And yet here we are a week later. Thomas says, unless I touch the the hands, unless I put my hand in the side, I I will not believe. And Christ comes in and he says, peace be with you. Jesus doesn't offer a lecture. He offers an invitation. Look at verse 27, guys. If you believe in writing your Bible, I, I believe uh, Bibles are textbooks. I believe that we write, we make notes, we do all those things. I understand if you're like my grandmother, that if you put one dot in there, you think that somehow there's judgment from heaven coming down. <laughs> I, so I respect either way. But, but if you are one that writes in your Bible, circle verse 27, guys, John 20:27. 20, it is a, I don't use this word very much as a guy. But it is a precious verse. It really is. Because what I want you to see here is that Christ, instead of lecture, instead of condemnation, he offers an invitation to Thomas. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it into my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Do not disbelieve, but believe. This is a compassionate Savior. This is not a Savior who said, okay, Robert, by now you should have enough data points to be able to complete this. And this is not a Savior who looks and says, okay, logically this should have all connected now, and so you're very much at fault, that you have worry and unbelief, and so you're on your own to struggle back to a place of belief. What do we see our compassion? This is holy God. This is Christ. And does he know what Thomas said? Yeah. I won't believe unless I can touch the the nail print and I can thrust my hand into where the sword was. He knows that Thomas said this. And so what does he do? Oh, so that's the kind of faith you want to play? You have to have that kind of faith? No, he says, Thomas, you, you need to believe? Come and touch take your hand. If you want to, go ahead and put it into my pure side. Because I don't want you to be in a place of disbelief, but belief. This is a compassionate Christ. This is a loving God. This is the God we serve, guys, that don't look upon every offense. And again, I'm not saying that God ever takes sin and doubt and fear lightly. He knows how damaging it can be to our lives. So he takes it very seriously. But he doesn't sit there with a finger pointed into our face and just lectures us. What we see, the response of this God, when he sees this failure is an invitation to come and experience him. Verse 28, I I love verse 28. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Theological. I could preach a whole sermon just on that. He didn't just say, My Lord. Remember when Jesus says, Peter, who do you say that I am? Or who do you say that thou art the Christ? Here, Thomas says, my Lord, and what? There's a whole bunch of theological depth there. This is a great statement, guys. He sees one story. He may not comprehend the wholeness of this one story, but he understands Jesus is not the Son of God. He is God. This is a great proclamation. Now, here's the thing. We don't know. Scholars are, are, are divided on this. It never tells us that Thomas went over there and put his finger actually into his hand. doesn't say that we, we don't have any points, data points, that's okay. And he went over and he thrust his hand into his side. We don't know if he did or if he did not. He did see the hole and he did see that because we see that a little bit later on. But we don't know if he did or not. It really doesn't matter in one point if he actually had to go out there. All we see is that we have this generous heart of a kind and loving Savior that says, this is what you need to believe. I I invite you to experience. One of my uh, favorite writers, Jarrett Wilson, in his book, Gospel Wakefulness, he says, when doubt comes into our lives, we have this invitation, and that invitation gives us opportunity. And so he said, when, opportunity, when Christ gives us this invitation to experience this opportunity, he said, hurl yourself at Christ. I don't know what kind of picture you get in your mind of hurl yourself at Christ. In other words, it's almost like what we saw before by that Clemson grad. <laughs> He's so excited, he just kind of jumps up there he's so excited that his day has come and just in that exuberance and that excitement, man, is reckless abandon, boom! And that's what we see here. This morning, I-, I want you to know that as we go through the times that we will have doubts, we will have fears, there will be times that our faith really isn't strong, that at those times that, understand that you have a, a, a Christ, you have a a Savior. You have a God who invites you to hurl yourself at Him. For us, oftentimes it's going to be through the Word. Just to to go into the Word and try to find if we're struggling with something, we try to find some of the answers in in the Word of God. Verse 29. Jesus actually begins to talk about us. 2,000 years ago, but He's already fast-forwarding to our experiences, and look what He says. Jesus said to him, He's saying it to Thomas, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet believe. That's talking about us. Have you seen Christ? Not have you experienced Christ. I hope that you've experienced Christ. But have you physically seen Christ? I haven't. Have you physically put your finger into the nail print of his hand? I haven't. Have you thrust your hand into his side? I haven't. And yet, he said, if you have faith and belief that blessed are you. Now, as we conclude this one, I want you to know that God has invited us to bring our doubts to him. One of the natural human reactions when we have doubt is actually to kind of estrange ourselves from that place of doubt. If you have doubt about your work, do you feel enthusiastic about going to work tomorrow morning? That's kind of a dumb question because nobody's really super enthusiastic about going to work tomorrow. But But if you had doubts about the future of your work there, if you had doubts about the relationship at work, you're not enthusiastic about it. You kind of shrink away. That's what doubt does. That's what fear does. It kind of makes us want to go in the other direction instead of the direction of kind of moving in. And and that's why it's so important that we see that Christ says, man, I know it's dangerous waters, but come, I invite you. How do we do that? Well, the Bible says in Romans 10, it says, that, that that faith comes from hearing, and hearing comes from the Word of God and other translations from the Word of Christ. When doubt comes into our lives, guys, pour yourself into the Word. Say, so God, you've invited me to to come with my doubts. Will you send me to your word? Will you just show me your word and how it answers some of these fears and some of these doubts? I'm gonna close this morning by, by doing something. Guys, we are emotional people. God is the one that gave you emotions. But are emotions always the best indicator of what is solid and true? I mean, we love to be passionate people. We love to be passionately in love. We love to to be passionate about our sports or something like that. And yet, not all of our passions always are a great dictate of what is truth and what is not. And so sometimes we can be passionately wrong. Would you agree with that? may not happen often, but sometimes we can be passionately wrong. But no matter where you are right now, I mean, I can imagine, you know, you're going through a long sickness, you're going through some other troubled times. Financial troubles, oh my goodness, financial troubles have a weight that's kind of uh, an area all by itself. Just all kinds of fear and doubt and wonder come into our life, even if we're the ones that cause some of the financial troubles. But whether it's sickness, whether it's relationship, whether it's very personal, whether it's a, a family, here, here's guys. I'm going to end today with four things that are going to be true when you go to bed tonight, and four things that will be true in the morning when you wake up, no matter where your emotions are. Okay? Because of Easter, these four things are true. Number one, that God is still on the throne and He's sovereign over all things. My kind of wandering life, my kind of emotions up and down do not quell in any way do not discount in any way the finished work of what christ has done and that god is sovereign and he's on his throne would you agree with that this morning second thing that death and sin will still be defeated by the finished work of christ That when I go to bed tonight, do you believe that because the finished work of Christ, for all those who have put their faith and trust, that sin and death have been defeated? Do you believe that will be true tomorrow morning, no matter what your emotions are? Third thing that we see there, that you will still be in the firm grasp of Christ's hand. He says, nobody can pluck you. If you're in my hand, nobody can pluck you out of my hand. So I'm not relying on... On my ability to hold on to God, you know where my salvation is? God's ability to hold on to me, and he's promise. I'm not letting go. No matter what my emotions say. And the last thing, you will still be sealed by the very Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, until the day of redemption. See, one day we, we, we will stand before God in glory. And then, as I've said many times, we won't have to have faith. You don't have to have faith in heaven. Everything is real. You don't have to have faith. There's not a disconnect between what we know to be real and what we think to be real. No, everything will be real, so we don't have to have faith in heaven. But until then, we have to exercise faith. And that's where sometimes discouragement and doubt and different things come in. So God said, look, I just want you to know you are sealed by, the very, by my seal. I will go and live and dwell inside you until the day of redemption. Until this day when you don't have to have faith anymore, I'm inside you, sealing. And I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I need to know those kind of things when I go to bed tonight on those days you've begun to to kind of get discouraged or doubt. I need to be reminded that as I would wake up tomorrow morning and you go out to the challenges of the week and the day, that because of this pinnacle event of all of human history, because Christ is risen from the dead just as he said, that these things are true and they will be ever true for everyone who puts their faith and trust in Christ. We will have battles with doubt, with fear, and lack of faith. They're, they're going to come. Why? Because what we said in the very first sentence... We are fallible humans. We can mess up. That's why it took one who did not mess up, one who was perfect in every way, come pay the price and extend that by invitation to us. In the moments of doubt, "I, I just don't know, God. I don't know unless I touch, unless I feel. He doesn't say, well, you shouldn't be like that. Touch my hand. Thomas, take out your hand. Put it in my side. I I, I don't want you to be in unbelief. I want you to live in belief. Let's pray this morning. Father, we love you. We thank you. Thank you that you are a kind, compassionate God. Father, I thank you. I praise you this morning that you're not the God. That, yes, you you have commands, and there's a sternness that sometimes you deal with uh, sin in our lives in, in a very stern way. But Father, you, you always have this invitation, Father, to come and believe. Father, thank you that you're not the God that says, Man, you've really messed up and, and and you didn't see that coming, you should have seen it coming. You're not the God that says, Okay, because I've done this, now I just stink and you don't have anything to do with me. No, you're the kind of God that says, You've messed up. You stepped in the middle of sin. And I will clean you up. And I will make you mine. Who could find such a God? Nowhere, Father. Nowhere do we find a God like you. And so this morning, Father, for, for this humble assembly of here at Cornerstone Church, Father, Father, thank you that you know the hearts and the minds of everyone here. And you know the load of, of doubt and you know the, the load of, of lack of faith or the struggle that some are having because of various reasons. It may be financial, it may be relationship, it may be marriage, it may be job, it may be sickness. But Father, thank you that this morning that you are one who brings us medicine for our soul so that we can rest in truth. Father, thank you that tonight when I go to bed, no matter what I am feeling, you are sovereign God. And you are on your throne. And I thank you for that. Now, Father, lead us in this song and this worship that we give back to you this morning. That, Father, that we may just sing our hearts. and Father, that we may even come to the altar and pray and, and may be part of confession of Father, that we shouldn't have doubted, but we thank you for the invitation to come before you. Whatever it is, Father, this morning, we, we pray that you would work in to our hearts and our lives as we worship you through this song. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.